0: I would like to acknowledge the Bunjilung people of the Arakwal Nation. Their land is where this podcast was recorded. I'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging and the fact that they've been telling stories, having conversations and performing poetry and song on this land for thousands of years. Welcome to the Future Ancients Podcast. My name is Luca Lesson and this episode of the podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Those legendary human beings who have now amassed to a crowd of 113 people, which is such a huge help in keeping this whole boat afloat in these crazy times. I felt like this episode was really important. It was very pertinent and extremely timely. I had booked in to talk with Dr. Neil Hall uh, many weeks ago. I've known him for a very long time now since we met at Ubud Writers Festival in Bali, Indonesia in 2012, and we stayed in touch. And when I started thinking about who I could get as guests for this series, the first series of this podcast, I immediately thought of him mainly because I wanted to talk about an issue that he raised with me that has stayed with me since our first conversation in Ubud all those years ago. And that is a conversation around economic violence, around how we can use our buying power to change the world. And it stayed with me, that conversation that we had all those years ago, and I wanted to unpack it more. And that conversation that process of me getting in contact with dr hall and making this all possible happened actually two or two or three months ago happened a long time ago and then all of this stuff started moving and changing and shifting of course with the sad and horrible murder of george floyd in the u.s in minneapolis we've gone through a process now of opening and widening our scope and understanding what has been going on in the world and what needs to happen from here on out. So as a person who doesn't identify as an indigenous to Australia and is not black in the context of this whole conversation as a Greek Australian, I really felt like it was extremely important, even more important to have this conversation with Dr. Hall and for us to connect on a real comfortable level but be able to unpack these things a little bit further and, and I hope that brings some depth of conversation to all of you who are listening I hope that brings another little light bulb moment or two for you to go off and, and continue your study and learning and how we can not just be not racist but actually actively anti-racist. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. At the end of this episode, I've placed a response poem or rap verse at the very end of this episode, so be sure to stay tuned in for that. This is my conversation with Dr. Neil Hall, and this is the Future Ancients Podcast. Mr. Neil Hall, I should say, Doctor Neil Hall. Welcome to the Future Ancients podcast. How are you, man?
1: Fine, It's Good to see you again.
0: You too, man. Been a long, long time. Long time. Was <laughs> uh, Bali, Indonesia. Bali, Indonesia. Ubud Writers uh, Festival. Ubud, Ubud yes. Two thousand and twelve, yes. I think, maybe. Somewhere around, around yeah, thirteen. Yeah, somewhere around there, man. You've been on a, a crazy journey with your poetry since then. That was your first book of poetry that you were releasing then? Yes, Nigger for Life. Yeah. And maybe we should start there. Tell, tell us a little bit about that journey of, of becoming, I mean, you already were a poet to a certain extent, but becoming a, a public poet, of publishing your first book. How did that happen?
1: Um Actually, the book came about not at, as an attempt to write a book. It was sort of it's like a diary of some things that were going on uh, at the time. Um, and one of my favorite English teachers was taught poetry, so um, I just felt the best way to express myself was in that form of writing. But I was writing about what was going on. I had. Um, Four years of Cornell, Um, I was a pre-med major. Prior to going to Cornell, never had chemistry, never had biochemistry, never had organic chemistry, never had anatomy. So I'm taking all this stuff for the first time at an Ivy League school, playing football, running indoor track and outdoor track. This is not to brag, but this is the setup where, where all this was taking me. And then I went from there to medical school, Uh, And then from there, um, I did a um, uh, eye surgery residency ophthalmology at Harvard, Um, graduated, always believed, always was taught that um, the way out, one of the major ways out for um, people of color was in education. And and I pursued that path uh, faithfully. Uh, only to find out that no matter what uh, we achieved, no matter what I achieved, that I would always be first and foremost a nigger for life. And that was, that was devastating. It was just devastating. You know, there's examples that, you know, how that manifests itself. Uh, but uh, it was like a perfume, an odor. It would precede you. Mm. And um, and alert everyone that a nigger was coming, mm. irrespective of you know your um, your your academic accomplishments. I was always defined first by my co- the color of my skin, uh, and then had to sort of work through and beyond that to try to move ahead. That was very painful. So this book sort of came out of all that. And again, I didn't write it as a book. When I shared it with some friends, they encouraged me to make a book out of it.
0: So mm-hmm. I got started. You'd been writing poems dealing with this realization as a form of therapy for yourself, in a way, as a form of dealing with it.
1: Oh, absolutely! I, you know, um, I think you have to work things out in your own mind, in your own soul. Um, before you can uh, begin to move forward, before you can even begin to help other people work it out. You gotta work it out in your own mind. Uh, you gotta, um, I would say with this formal education, you, the only thing that a formal education really does for you is three things, teach you how to read, write, and do arithmetic. And with those three things, you have an obligation to go out and find the truth for yourself. Through all the bullshit and lies and brainwashing that you receive in your formal education, you have to go out and find the truth for yourself. If you cannot find the truth for yourself, you have to create your own truths. Mm. And so that's what this whole process did for me, You know, just in my head dealing with all these things. I've learned to um, form my own truth that protected me from the lies of the world. Mm.
0: And poetry helps me. Yeah. And I remember when we first met, we were, we got along straight away and we were hanging out in Ubud and we were yeah. you know, kicking it in a couple of cafes and bars around there in between events. And, and we sat down one day and we had this really kind of in-depth political conversation about the planet. And you, you very clearly taught me something that day that, that has stayed with me. And you asked me the question, you know, what is the most effective way of political change? And I I can't remember what my answer was, but it was probably a long-winded, kind of slightly misguided, you know, it could be a bit of this and it could be a bit of that and it could be a bit of this. Uh, And I was really, and I still am a student, you know, we have to stay as students. But you really very clearly pointed out that economic violence is the best form of pushing for social change. And that was, you know, many years ago now, but I know that your position hasn't changed necessarily. And I'm wondering if we can unpack that a little bit as to why that's still your perspective and and why that relates to what's going on now.
1: Well, one of the reasons why it's it's, uh, something that I truly believe in is because it's the one thing we have not done yet in our fight and struggle for freedom. Everything else, we prayed, We've we've accepted their religions, their politicians, their lies. We've done everything except build our economic powerhouse. Okay. Um, But I start back from how did all this come about? It came about because of economics. Mm. We, We were brought as slaves to America and around the world Uh, not because we were inferior, but because we were slaves. Cheap source of labor, it was about economics. It's always been about economics. So if it was economics that enslaved us, it has to be economics that frees us. It has to be our economics that does that. And we have advanced at least far enough now that collectively, worldwide, we as people of color and people who really want to work together as one, we have enough collective economics to change the world. if we spend it correctly, mm-hmm. if we stop wearing it on our ass, those assets on our ass, and we spend the money to change their behavior, then we'll be much further along than we are right now. And the oppressor teaches us to one of the ways to press ahead, if you allow me to say that, uh, against them is to try to change their hearts and their minds. And you can't change someone who doesn't have a heart and no mind to change. We can only change their behavior. You can hate me, you can dislike me, but if I can get your foot off my neck, literally now, um, by the way we spend our money, then, in essence, we free ourselves. And, and and that that's the message they don't want us to know. They would rather see us out on street marching, looting, protesting, sitting in, instead of just quietly, collectively saying, we're not going to spend our money with you. And I... It's always been there. It's always been in front of us. And um, some years back, I spent a lot of time reading and listening to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And what I realized is that the Montgomery bus boycott, even though uh, the great Martin Luther King wrapped in this religious victory, was no more than an economic victory. When we stopped riding the bus, And going downtown, spending money in white businesses. When we stopped that, that's really what changed things. White businesses were losing money. The bus company was losing money, and they changed their behavior and said, "Hey, well, you can sit anywhere you want." It was—it was it was all has always been right in
0: front of us. And it was almost immediate from from memory. And same with the conversation that we had when we were in Auburn. I think you gave me the the um, example of Coca-Cola in communities and people yes. just deciding that's it. We're just not gonna that's buy it. Coca-Cola anymore. And all of a sudden their programs changed. They started including that's more black people in their higher levels of leadership. And it was almost overnight that the economics made right. the push. That's
1: right. And Jesse Jackson led that against uh, Coca-Cola. Overnight, Coca-Cola started changing its hiring practice. Uh, the dealerships that they were allowing that, that, that um, to um, for for blacks, all that opened up. So the answer is right in front of us. We just we just too blind to see it because we're taught to fight them by the way they tell us to fight them. Mm-hmm. And, and another example is, anytime there's a hot mic and someone says "nigga" and get caught. The next day, they're coming back crying uh, before the American audience. They're crying because their sponsors' money are backing out, and the sponsors are backing out because oh, we don't want to offend the niggas so that they continue to buy our stuff.
0: Hmm.
1: It's our struggle is intimately, intimately tied to our economics and we have enough economics now to change the world if we just spend it with one mind together Mm. and remember in doing that that we are no better than the next man and if we lose sight of that we run the risk of becoming what they are to us
0: Yes. I wonder about that when it comes to the conversation about economics and about, you know, becoming billionaires and these conversations around Jay- the Jay-Z's and the, and the Oprah's of the world and, and whether there is still in that, you know, deep striving for, for capitalism still, but capitalism owned by a different group of people, if there are still victims in that in other parts of the world um, in South Central and South America that are producing certain products, um, slave labor that happens in, in other parts of the planet, you know, to be able to do that, but to be able to do that consciously that still, you know, can, can prove to the world that it can be done without severe victims or at least, you know, figure out a new path.
1: And, and that's why I say it's, we have to understand that as economics as a weapon to free not just ourselves, but everyone. And so we have to approach this from the right heart, why we are doing this. You know, they say um, um, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's bullshit. That is, man is the root of all evil. Money is just one of the tools that a bad man can use to um, exact his evil. But a good man can use that tool to do things good for man. And so we must not look at economics as this bad thing. Uh, it's men, man that is bad. Uh, but if you have a good heart, we need the power to manifest that goodness out in the world. It's like having a brand new car. You can have a great heart, brand new car, but, if you don't have the gas to run the car, you're going nowhere. The medium of exchange of power, and we need power in the world is economics. When we go into a store, what gives us the power to walk out with a candy bar and not be you know, stopped for stealing? is the economics that we have in our pockets. That's the medium of exchange of power. It's how we use that power. And I think we have the heart. We have to have the heart to use it correctly.
0: Mm. And how does that translate into your day-to-day consumption? Like, does it, do you think about this often in terms of like, well, I'm just not going to buy that. I'm not going to, purchase this thing. I mean, I know that a lot of people can be quite fascist in a way that they try and implement their own ideologies and push other people to be the same. A lot of people that are either that are maybe vegan or that believe in you know certain things, they're just like, never buy this, never buy that. And I've found that, yes, I understand that. But there's also room for us to make mistakes and observe our mistakes as we make them to learn from them, to connect with them to know that You know, even though I bought a a plastic bottle of water today that's owned by Coca-Cola, I didn't have many choices at that store and I, you know, needed a drink. But for the rest of the year, I don't do it and I don't go to McDonald's. You know, like how do we weigh up all of these things that we're doing to move into a good direction?
1: Yeah, it's bigger than just what I do in terms of deciding what not to buy and what to buy. It's much bigger than that. And if we're looking for change, I'm looking for quick, big Massive change, and so it's at first it's about a philosophy, an understanding of the importance of economics, and then finding like-minded people that can begin to create that understanding to a critical mass of people who then, as one say, we all are not going to buy this one thing because they are not treating us right. Hmm. That's the point we got to get to. So it's bigger than my individual buying habits. It's got to be our collective buying habits. Understanding that economics is the key here.
0: Hmm. So you're saying it's more about having a certain movement towards a certain boycott process, towards a certain... Um, company until it changes its process and, and changes the way it supports things politically.
1: Absolutely. And you know, all you got to do is one or two big companies, make an example of them, and everyone will fall in line. Hmm.
0: That's
1: all we have to
0: do. I saw that on, uh, online. I think it was um, TI, the rapper from Atlanta. He had a, a petition or a, or a movement or a call out that July 7 was going to be a a national boycott day of of not buying anything for all people of color um, in the United States to not purchase anything for one or two days. And I think he'd calculated that that equates to over a billion dollars of revenue that gets lost when that happens. Do you think it's enough to just say, we're just not gonna purchase one day? Or do you think it's, like you are saying, more important to be like, we're gonna not purchase Adidas, we're gonna not purchase Nike, we're gonna not purchase um, you know, some, something from Amazon because until they improve their workers' rights. Um, do you think that's more powerful?
1: I think it's more powerful to understand how this is a tool, a weapon that we can use. Hmm. An eco, a weapon of economic violence that they can't shoot us in the street, they can't hang us, they can't jail us, they can't put us down on the ground and put their knees on our neck because we're not buying our stuff, our, their stuff. This is a philosophy, this is an understanding. Hmm. So, um, and once you have that, once it's ingrained, then we can do that. And we can do it every day. Yeah. So it, it's almost like we have to start teaching ourselves and our communities and our kids from, the, from day one that this is what we need to do. This is essential, this economic um, weaponry that we now have access to collectively, mm. um, but use it the right way. Use it for the good of all of us.
0: Powerful stuff, man. I 100% believe that. And there's movements in Australia as well around buying from only black businesses in Australia uh, about, you know, obviously donating where possible and about using our economies and using our finances to to vote really every day, like you're saying. And I think that, something interesting that has come out of all of this as well is that just today or last night australia's supreme court deemed it illegal to get out and protest uh today as people are doing in solidarity with the black lives matter and aboriginal lives matter movements in australia and in the u.s and and abroad and they're making it illegal because they're saying that it's uh, risky for covid cases for people to be outside and um, protesting. And I guess that this is a good answer to that. You know, I'm not saying people shouldn't protest. I think people, I think actually them saying that is going to make more people go and protest than ever. I think the crowds are going to be massive today. Uh, But I do think that there's something that goes beyond either posting black squares on your Instagram or protesting one day a year or two days a year and, and that is what you're saying this economic violence that can really shift society. But I guess it's about educating people around that and getting the information out around that. Um, I don't and know. That's,
1: that's why. Yeah.
0: No, please. I was wondering if you had experience with that or what you would say about that.
1: About what in particular? About getting like, the about, information
0: out to people to let them know that this well, is that's a what, weapon.
1: Well, that's what I try to do. That's, you know, part of my poetry is not only talking about the problem, but saying, okay, this is what I think the solution is. Hmm. And it's always been there. We've just been, um, uh, it's been kept from us. Uh, but this, this is the answer. Yeah, you know, Australia say you can't um, uh, protest. They don't want you out in the street marching under the guise of uh, the COVID. You well, know, you know, you can sit at home and not buy. I mean, I'm just, we have marched enough. We have protested enough. That was a weaponry that worked at some point. And now we must move to the real weapon, the one that we've been kept from. At one time in the past, collectively, we didn't have enough economics, even if we understood this, we didn't have enough economics to make an impact, to change behavior. But now we do, we do, collectively. And we can do it without having to be subjected to their manipulation of laws or orders with respect to our, our actions, They They can't jail you for not buying sneakers, collectively.
0: Yeah, it'd take, it'd take us all to go against all of the messaging of all of the millions and billions of dollars of marketing that has been fed to most of us. I mean, I don't watch or engage with any of that anymore, but it would take a huge feat of consciousness to, for people not saying that it's not impossible, but for people to ignore the 20,000 times in their lifetimes that they've encountered an advertisement for Versace or for some label that they don't You know that they long to afford, um, and for them to lose that dream that's been fed to them to to one day afford a Versace, you know, handbag or whatever it is, and to to drop that even though it's been fed to them so clearly and so strongly for so long, and it's so so much a part of the culture. I remember when I was in two places actually that I think I've been advertised the most to is New York and Singapore. Where every single thing, every single kind of angle that you turn, you know, from the back of the back of the seat in the taxi is there's a TV screen advertising something to me. You get out of the taxi, the taxi door has an advertisement on it. You turn around, there's five shops, there's a billboard, there's a, you know, there's someone walking, like in Singapore, there's young students walk around with billboards on their backs, you know, like that's their hourly job, 12 Singapore dollars an hour to walk around and be an ad. So to, to, you know, to go against all of that is to really reconnect with the self, you know, to reconnect with the heart. My, my what's important. To
1: that, and my answer to that is I think about the first slave who decided to run. And if we use the analogy of the whip as a way of advertising, uh, controlling your mind, mm. uh, your behavior. Uh, that was some massive advertising, okay, getting the crap beat out of you, uh, being treated like dirt. But that first slave who decided that was enough, they overcame all that to say, I'm going to run. I'm out of here. And I just say, if that first slave can do that, then this is nothing for us. Mm. This is nothing. And so for me, and I, a couple years I told my friends about this when um, you know, things like what happened to Mr. Floyd happened you know, in years past, I would always say, we're not hurting enough. We don't have enough pain yet. And until we get to that level of pain, unfortunately, we're gonna continue to fall victim to what you just talked about. Hmm. Uh, When we get enough pain, then we'll we'll make that move. We'll we'll make that move to move away from all that brainwashing. But I always go back to, anytime I feel like, I think of that first slave who said, that's it, I'm running. And they ran. We need to be like that first slave again say
0: that's it that's it do you think that that's happening you think that's what this is this moment even though it is full of protests and it is full of you know different ways of protest
1: no no i don't think that's it i just think you know for some people it's um you know, it's popular to hop on the banner. You got the liberals that are out there, and I I don't get too political about liberals or conservatives, but you got people who hop on because, you know, they feel guilty and this is the right thing to do now uh, in light of their appalling silence. So they want to be heard now. Um, No, this is until we understand that it's really about economics. This is not a race war. This is not a gender war. This is not a religious war. This is not an ethnic war. This is what it's always been, an economic war. Race, gender, uh, religion, those are the tools, the weaponry of the economic war. They got us focusing on that when they know it's an economic war. As soon as we switch and realize that it's an economic war, then we will come to the battle with the right weapon. And that's our collective economics. And it'll be far easier to do that collectively than that first slave that had to run and run and run with fear. Dogs chasing them. The fear of being caught and having their flesh ripped off their back again. So, no, I, not, I, not,
0: I, not there yet
1: we're not there yet
0: mm.
1: we're not there yet
0: who that do you see hard. who do you see doing it the right way then who do you see out there that you align that you are aligned with that when you see them make a move that's an economic one where you go yeah that's that makes sense and is it If it's not a a race war or a gender war and and an ideological war, it's an economic war, does that then break down some of those boundaries for you? And do you see other people of color from other backgrounds also doing the right thing with their money where you kind of go, yeah, he gets it or she gets it?
1: See, um, you know, some of my friends, we have these conversations and we try to do things like this on our small level, hopefully to build, and so that our light can shine and other people can see it and emulate it, or join in. But uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a crazy kind of way, I always tell all of my friends, you know, if I was in the real war, the people I'd want to hang out with are the rappers. You know, people who, who did the most, but the least. Mm. They understood it was about economics. Now they may not spend the economics, in a way in which uh, I think would, um, in the way in which we could change behaviors so that we all can be freer. But they understand that it's about economics. They understand that. If you look at some of the athletes, you know, now it's about being, you know, the, the best, um, the, a pro bowler. Yeah, there's the economics, but, you know, they don't understand that it's really about the economics, at least some of them, I shouldn't say all of them. Um, But to me, the rappers have done the most with the least. Mm. But if you look at some of these formally educated people who have the most, they have done the least. Because they have bought more into the lives than um, um, those people who are not so formally educated. And for me, much of formal education is miseducation, and misinformation mm. so
0: amazing i love that idea that it's you want to hang with the people that do the most with the least I've, i feel like i have a few friends around that i've seen really shine and, and in this time i'm just being like you know what man in the apocalypse i'm gonna call these five people <laughs> like, that's gonna be my crew one's a mad chef and he's built these restaurants from nothing you know that's right and another yeah that's like right. some other poets and couple of you know really good gardeners that can build some shit build some houses couple you know some more artists you know like some people that have built from nothing that have come from really difficult times when difficult times fall upon them they face it with a smile and come out the other end
1: that's right that's
0: That's just like man that is that's the that's the apocalypse crew (laughs) we're gonna start to start the community right now do do you think that's why you turn to poetry that, that you'd gotten so far in your career and you'd still been treated you know, without dignity in those halls that you thought would erase in some way that kind of prejudice. Do you think that's why poetry kind of became powerful for you? Because it, it really is an act of making something from nothing.
1: Well, two things. I think um, poetry was a way to speak to myself, to have a dialogue with myself, uh, you know, I got X, Y, and C. What's going on? I got to think this through. So poetry allowed me to do that. The other thing I learned as I went on in the area of poetry was that um, I did, what didn't necessarily turn to poetry. I was always a poet. I turned away from poetry because someone told me and defined for me what success was. Someone told me if I was a doctor, I'd be successful. And so I bought their dream, their life for me. I was always a poet. I remember when I was a kid, I was so sensitive. I was sensitive about everything. You know, and and poets have this level of sensitivity that's just, I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you. I always tell you, you're my poet, you know. (laughs) Your, Your stuff is just great, I mean. So you have that level of sensitivity and feeling that, you know, something hits you and it, it, it haunts you. You've got to do something with it. You've you got to play with it in your head and make sense out of it. And then when you make sense out of it, you hope, then you memorialize it on paper, you know, to, um, to live, to have a place to live, to go back to it, to relive it, to have it re energize you, or to share it with the world uh, so they can do whatever they want with it. But I, when I'm doing my poetry around the world. I tell people, and I apologize ahead of time. I say, you know, I don't write for you. I write to free me first. I'm sharing it with you, but I write for me, to free me, my mind, my thinking, to undo all the brainwashing that I was subjected to all those years. And it it is freeing. Uh, you know, going back to that sort the first slave metaphor again, someone said to me, when, when is freedom? When is freedom? And I thought about it and I said to myself, freedom is that first moment in your head when you say, I want to be free. No more. I'm not, I, I not going to do it anymore. I need to be free. Now, the next step is I'm becoming free, mm. working towards that. And um, it may take you days, weeks, months, years to get the shackles off. But that moment you set it in your head, you were free. You were free. You just needed to do what it takes to get the chains off.
0: Mm. It reminds me of a story from my family that nazis in world war ii invaded my grandmother's village and her relatives villages in in the area and they the village before they arrived at my grandmother's village we had relatives there and they rounded up all the men and killed all the men in the village and set fire to a a church hall or a school hall with all the women and children inside and they eventually escaped because a soldier made a decision, a very interesting decision, a soldier that I think was Swedish, that was an ally with the Germans at the time, decided to open the door of the church hall of the hall where all the women and children were in, because he couldn't bear to see them all die as well as all the men that were killed um, by gunfire, not so far away. And so he at that moment was also kind of free. He was like, I, even though I'm in this military, even though I came here to fight and I believe in something, I don't believe in this. And so he opened the doors and I think he was killed by his allies, by the German, by the Nazis that he was, you know, working with because he disobeyed orders and set these women and children free. And then the Nazis came down the mountain to my grandmother's village, and they rounded up all the men there, and everybody thought that the same thing was about to happen and They lined them all up, and they marched them to an area where they were intending on executing them. If these two German soldiers didn't um, arrive back in time, they would say, "Well, then they've been killed by the Greek soldiers, by the Greek um, kind of guerrilla fighters in the mountains, so we need to a reprisal, so we're going to kill all the men in this village for that and as they were marching the men to that place, my grandmother's brother, who was about 16 at the time, was among them, along with his father. And of all the men that were lined up to go and march and, and be executed, he decided at a certain moment to to run. And so he had a moment where he's like, fuck this. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know what I mean? I'm not gonna end up like what happened in the village before yeah. this. And so he ran. And they shot him as he was running and they kind of left him and he stumbled around hiding in the village for, for a number of hours and eventually got back to his house and they took him to the hospital and he, and he passed away in the hospital. But the men that they'd taken, eventually they waited and waited. And the two German soldiers returned from the hills and they hadn't been killed by the guerrilla fighters. And so they let everyone go. So the men weren't killed in the village. Only my grandmother's brother was killed for running. Mm. But in that moment, I'd always thought of it as such a heartbreaking story of like, when there's ruthlessness and heartlessness, you just, there's no right move. You know, he could have stayed with the guys with the rest of the men and, and they all could have perished. He could have run and lived, you know, like when there's heartlessness and, and absolute, um, brutal hate like there was then then it's very hard to know what to do but in that moment you're right he was free in that moment where he chose to run he made a choice you know and that choice was extremely risky and extremely powerful for him to be like you know what even though there's all these soldiers around here and there's 99.9 chance that i'm not gonna make it out i'm still gonna run because I deserve yeah. to be free. I'm not going to yeah. walk to my own death with yeah. these guys. Yeah. And and you're right, that moment is that moment that we make those decisions, uh, well, you know, I guess now I make those decisions more metaphorically or differently than a life and death situations because of the privilege that I have even though I receive racism in Australia, I don't receive that kind of threat of fearing for my life in front of police officers on a daily or weekly basis as other people do in this country and in the States and other places as well. But I do, you know, we do like a metaphor, like you're saying, you know, we do need to make that decision every day, almost to wake up and be like, I'm going to be free. I'm going to make a decision from the perspective of freedom um, and not of, of, you know, of fear and not of, um, wanting to quash myself or deny myself or shrink myself because of what society expects of me or not to do what, you know, not be afraid to talk out when there's injustice. For me, and I often criticize the Greek community in Australia because for me, for us to not talk about injustice is in many ways an insult to our ancestors, you know, an insult to my grandmother's brother to my, and my ancestors that were under... Ottoman occupation for 400 years, that was completely brutal for us to then just watch that same thing go on around us is horrible, is, is an insult for me to our ancestors. And this week I saw that the Archdiocese, the head of the Greek Orthodox Church in the United States marched with the Black Lives Matter movement um, in New York City in Brooklyn. And I was really proud of that moment, even though I know it's not everything and it might just be performative, but it's more than what I've ever seen, really. Um, and he carries on a tradition of another archdiocese of the United States who marched with Martin Luther King in Selma. He was Mm -hmm. the only, uh, church leader from a non-black denomination or a non-black church leader that marched with Martin Luther King at that time. Mm -hmm. So that's really a part of our lineage. If we choose it to be a part of our lineage, Mm -hmm. um, and choosing that freedom, you know, choosing to be like. This is, this is worth walking for, marching for, running for, not buying for, whatever it is, doing it um, from the perspective of we all deserve to get free.
1: Yes. Yes. I agree
0: 100%. So what's this new book I hear about? You had an experience in, in um, Italy? Well,
1: yes. I was at the uh, American Academy in Rome doing a writer's residency, and uh, you know I go to the gym every day and I found the gym and I would walk um, to the gym uh, every day and six days in to the um, residency uh, I walked past this uh, military person uh, with a semi-automatic he looked at me. Now this area is in an affluent area, so there's not that many blacks on the streets at all. So he sort of looked at me, and I, you know, went past him and went on to the gym. I came back; he was still there. And interesting. He was guarding the American University. So I walked by him, and he then looked at me, and he put his gun up put his hand on the trigger and and was telling me to come to him uh, and asking me for my passport and telling me to come towards him. Um, so my whole thing was probable cause. Why are you stopping me? I'm not doing anything, you know, it was dumb of me, but, um, I just stopped in the street and I did not want to walk towards him because then, you know, he could shoot and say, you know, he shot because, you know, I was coming at him, and he feared for his life. So I just stood there, and he had his gun pointed at me, and it was getting very heated. You know, he was raising his voice, I was raising my voice. He was trying to tell me something in Italian, I was trying to tell him something in English. And um, I think what de-escalated it was his partner. was. Um, that was out there. Went inside the university and got someone that spoke English, and they came out. and And, and I guess what he thought I was was an illegal African alien. Hmm. But you know, again, why would you think that?
0: And why does that? And why does that uh, excuse pointing a gun at somebody?
1: That's right. That's right. And so it was the it happened on the eyes of March today that um, you know Caesar was reported to be murdered. And so um, I went back and told some of my uh, colleagues at the American Academy what happened, and you know uh, we talked about it. And then a day or two later later, the director of the academy challenged us to um, create something. Um, that, about Rome, that inspired us. And then there was this musician, uh, he played the piano and he did a piece on a bridge and you know, how the music would, you know, go up and then it would go back down. It was, he was, you know, following the bridge and the slope and the shape of the bridge. And I was just so impressed with that. So I had to figure out, "What what can I do? What can I do? And then I, you know, I thought back what had happened, It was the eyes of March. Uh, let me, you know, Julius Caesar. I went down to the ruins, where supposedly Julius Julius Caesar was stabbed. I started doing more reading and I said, ah, you know, Shakespeare wrote this as a way to show parallels between what was going on in the Elizabethan period at his time and what was going on in Rome. Power, corruption, those kinds of things. Injustice and equality. And so, um, and then I read a little more and I realized that um, I think the gentleman's name is North, uh, but Caesar used his work, excuse me, Shakespeare used his work to write this play. So I said, well, Shakespeare can do it. I can use Shakespeare's work to write about the parallels of what's going on today with. Um, uh, uh, That time, Roman period, as well. So I started doing it, and just about a year and a so later, I pretty much finished it. It was, I really loved it. It was very nice. I went through uh, the play three or four times. I picked out excerpts that were uh, well known around the world, um, uh, and then other excerpts that inspired me uh, to think and write about certain things. I set up some rules on how I was going to write the, poem, the poems, and I went about it. And just uh, Either I would think of something and then would say, okay, what excerpt would apply here? Or read some excerpts and say, okay, wow, that really inspired me to think about that. And I wrote the book, so it's, it's been getting some good reviews so far.
0: Yeah, how's it been going? You've released it recently. Is that right? April, April
1: 6th, you published and released
0: it. On my birthday. You didn't even know. Excuse me? On my birthday and you didn't even know. <laughs> That's your birthday? Yeah, man. April 6th. Oh, okay. <laughs> Happy birthday. It's <laughs> <laughs> a mad birthday present. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. You have to send me your address so I can send you a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. your birthday. Mad. Um, and you've gotten some good reviews and now you're you're heading to a residency in, in Crete, in Greece. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was, there was, that was a contest that I sent some work in, um, you know, I'm working in different areas and now I was, you know, my primary area is that of social inequalities and justice and all that kind of stuff because it's the closest thing to me. But you know, I've written stuff, love poems and haikus crews and things of that nature. So uh, I send some work to them, love poems to them and I happen to win a residency. So I'll be spending uh, probably two weeks and I'll extend it, you know, um, in uh, Greece. Um, as soon as this COVID thing is over
0: and then I'll head to Italy and Japan uh, after that. Nice. I, one thing I really love about your work is not just the the clarity of it and the kind of it feels like you're un... so many poets feel like they're weaving something from start to finish for me, it feels like you're kind of unraveling something from start to finish that you mm-hmm. that you find a moment to begin with, and then you kind of pick it apart before you get to mm-hmm. the end. It feels yeah. really powerful to me. And that meticul- kind of meticulous way of working, I also see you use in the way that you've been putting your poetry out into the world. It feels very meticulous, very methodical, the way that you've gone about applying for um, awards uh, sending your books to all the right places uh, approaching different uh, festivals or whatever it is you've really gone at it in a a super professional and powerful way more than i can really say for myself (laughs) and i wanted to know how how did that kind of come about how did you enter this world from being a surgeon to going i'm going to put a book out and just going well if i'm going to put a book out i'm going to do it properly where did you start how did that begin
1: well, as I said, friends encouraged me to to do the first book. And I was like, no, 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 no. that's uh, you know but they encouraged me, they pushed me, they had more faith and belief in me than I had in my far more than I had in myself. So, you know, sometimes and I tell some of my friends, you know, if you don't believe in yourself, if you have people around you that believe very strongly in you, sometimes you have to ride that horse, you know, and and until you can get to where you need to be and you can stand on your own two feet and start to believe in yourself. So that's what I did and I started getting some really good feedback from um, the the first book and that helped. That gave me a little more um, courage and and drive to keep moving forward. Um, And then I always believe you got to take control of your stuff. You can't let other people do it. You got to take control because uh, only you are going to do the best. And in the process of taking control, you also learn the process yourself. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, I didn't want to get a publisher f- straight out. I wanted to learn all the parts of publishing a book from you know, the writing it to the, the cover design, what fonts to use, what size book, you know, is the optimal book to have out there. Um, Getting an editor, having an editor by my side, it is almost like, you know, like we're like one. You gotta have somebody that you trust. You give them rules, and I say, you know, you can do the grammar, the spelling, but the word choices are mine. I live and die by my own word choices. Yeah, Um, Because I have to feel confident I have to get to a point where I'm confident enough that I, why choosing this word over this word is important. And I chose this word for a reason, I'm gonna stick by it and feel comfortable with that. You know, I can make that choice and say, that's it. I'm good with that. It may not have been the best choice in the world, but it was for me and I can live with that and learn from it. So that was also an important part of it, uh, having the right editor, graphic design person, and so I just learned to do it, and then just started researching um, festivals and just sending information out. And interesting, interesting enough, my first festival ever was um, Uber. Was Uber, Meeting, it was Uber. nice? Uh, that was the first whatever. They wrote me back and they said, you know, we have basically closed um, the. Um, uh, acceptance we're not accepting any more people or anything like that and I remember what she said I remember today she said normally I I was ready she said, I was ready to give you my the speech I give everyone in terms of narrative and she said there was just something about your stuff that I couldn't say no to you so and then she wrote me and she said if you can get here we'll take care of the rest you know your lodging food and all that stuff and I was on the plane. And it was, I, I think it was, I know it was something that I needed at that point in my career because, and you know, you, I'm gonna tell you this, you did a lot for me. Um, I tell you, you're one of the best poets in the world. Your stuff is amazing. The way you present is amazing. The way you carry yourself. And, and so, you know, I was just totally inspired by that whole experience with you, and um, and I I listen to your stuff even after for years. I would just listen to it. I even wrote a poem about you. I don't I don't know if you remember
0: it. And yeah. stole some of your lines. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that. I, I that means that. a lot to uh, me, bro. It really means uh, a lot uh, to me, man. I appreciate yeah. that.
1: And uh, oh, do you remember the the um, the the. the the poetry, spoken word poetry that we had at the Indonesia. The
0: slam the that festival. I hosted? Yes. Oh and my God, do I remember it? It was a marathon. <laughs> I was like, and I'll then, host it, but only if there's no more than, you know, you can't have more than 20, 20 30 poets at a slam, you know, it otherwise it gets tiring. They're like, yeah, yeah, no worries. And I think uh, there was like 40 poets or something by the end. I was just like... It, it,
1: it wasn't that bad. But the funny thing was you told the gentleman to throw out the highs and the lows numbers. Yeah. And he right. threw out all my tens. And yeah. so I didn't, I didn't make it
0: to this. Oh, man. Year. And at that's the last right.
1: minute, you, you figured it out.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, Neil did really well. That's not that's not his score. They're like, yeah, you told us to throw out the top score and the bottom score. So he got three tens. So we threw out all three tens. <laughs> 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 poor dudes man <laughs> poor guys yeah, they were yeah, just like locals yeah. helping out and they just got thrown in there and there was a language barrier and it was in front of everyone and i was on the microphone saying things to them trying not to get <laughs> upset and oh, yeah. woo, so yeah.
1: you, made, you made it you made it seamless but it oh was, man that was a beautiful time for me it was, a it, was. Time. it was a
0: great, it was one of those festivals that I really remember well. And, and one of those yeah. festivals that I met people that I'm still in contact with. And, and that's yes, yes. probably the Same best either. thing about a festival. I think the best kind of, you know, intangible result of a good festival is, yeah. you know, you met some people and they influenced you and you stay connected and it's, you know, good vibes. Yeah. So man, I think it'd be, time, it'd be amazing to uh, wrap up with one of your pieces from your collections. Is this from the new book?
1: No, this is from, I think it's from um, Where Do I Sit? And then this is the title of a Japanese version of a translation of some of my work, too. We used um, this title for the title of the book, The Weight of Just Black.
0: Mm. Ready? I'm ready. So this is the weight of just black when yeah. you're home.
1: It is not the weight
0: of black, but the immensity of
1: being made to be just black every time white confronts me. It is the weight of whites' derivation of black, a derivative definition of just black derived, in part, by the social conditions created, in large part, by whites. It is the stress and strain of an inexact, inaccurate depiction to foster an ill-conceived, preconceived description of an ill-meaning distinction of black nature, black imagery, Black sounds, the scope of black, derivatives of black derived, reconstituting me by white society to be just black. It is the immensity of immediate suspicion, the first sight of me through aqua blue seeds of constricting pupils narrowing their circular misgivings like a hangman's rope hung about my black. Throat. It is the weight of torque and tension in muscles and tendons, poised white flight or fright, posture to iPhone militarized police who serve and protect white and red line black free zones. It is the weighted density and white tone when switching from speaking to a white to just a black. It is the lift of an entitled nose, the flaring of nostrils, a glaring view through a narrowed view, through slits in mistrusting eyelids. It is the enormous weight of hate when they clutch their loosely held Gucci handbags, the first sight of me. The locking of the car doors, the first sight of me. The collecting of the brood, frolicking in aisles of department stores, the first sight of me. The gravity of familiarity, referring to me, renaming me, what's up, my man, the first sight of me. It is the insanity of in and nigger black, subhuman black, green light black, to shoot blacks in the back concealing it tracing the slain outlines of black and crime scene tape of plausible alibis and deniabilities concealing falling shadows of black and lines that divide sever white society from just black waited to be just black a derivative of me derived reconstituting me by white society to be just black
0: Ooh. Amazing, man. Holy hell. <laughs> <try> <laughs> That's a powerful piece. Very powerful. You. <laughs> man, you're beyond keeping up with me. Oh, no. That's so powerful, man. So powerful. You really, you know, a lot of my work is I, I, tr- I find a metaphor and I just can't let it go. <laughs> and you really, you held on to those colors and you really took, you know, you You sucked out every last bit of juice of the the bones of the marrow of those bones of that concept man. It's really beautiful. It means a lot to me coming from you because as
1: I tell everybody, when they say, who is your poet, who do you read? I always say you, always, your stuff is just off the chart.
0: I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. I'm so glad we got to connect on those days many years ago and that we get to reconnect now via distance. And you know, the process of this podcast, the idea is that I have these inspirational conversations with people like yourself. And then I go away and have to write something about, you know, inspired from our conversation. And then I record it at the end of the podcast. So I'm excited to see what it is that comes from here. Or, or if I don't write something, I choose something that I've already written and I use it as a response to what's, to what's transpired in the conversation. So I'm looking forward to really sitting with this. I'll listen to it again and I'll really, I'll come up with some kind of a response and I'm looking forward to that as well, man. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for your time, bro. I'll just. Thank
1: you. I appreciate you asking.
0: And thanks for coming to the show. All right, love you. Love you too, bro. I know I'm a product of the times because I still buy the same products. I don't want to be held accountable, but I believe cops have to face their misconduct. So I buy clothes from slave labor, but I protest the history. I posted a black square on my socials, but I know my voice lacks consistency. I mostly do the bare minimum, so I don't rock the boat. When I talk to my old folks on how to vote, I pretend that I wouldn't know. Even though I understand Black Lives Matter arguments, I know we're the ones they're targeting, but what's the point of me speaking out if we're never heard inside the parliament? So when people are being racist, I just don't say shit. I just stick to my own lane, my hashtags, my selfie sticks. It's not my fault. I was raised in a diet of apathy, self-important audacity, and ethical incapacity. I would never stick my knee in another man's neck, but I know I reap the benefits. In a system so violent and malevolent, being complicit is completely effortless. That's when smiling and being nice becomes something so venomous. The violence of ignorance as society balances on a precipice. I still buy products that I know make other people suffer. Brands that stutter when it comes to standing up for one another. I still buy shit I don't need to fill the gaps between what I think I need and what I truly lack. If I only knew that the way I spent every dollar was the best way to tighten my grip on a white collar. Best way to send a message to the police is to tell the systems that fund them my money's not coming to their streets. The best way to vote, to do what's right, to be heard. Is to only spend my money on businesses that deserve it. To use my morality as a lock around my wallet. To hold companies accountable before reaching into my pocket to give them some more profits. Then we'd see them switch. All of a sudden they'd consider their options. When a bottom line is threatened, every business finds its conscience. It's not the only way to end this conspiracy of silence. But I'm going to begin to end my compliance by using economic violence.